God this morning to Romans chapter 4, verse 13, and we'll read to 5, verse 11. Romans chapter 4. We begin reading at verse 13 of that chapter. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So far, the word of God. Let's respond to that word by singing Psalm 86, stanzas 1 and 2.
The text for the sermon this morning is the last verse of Romans 4, verse 25. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, uh, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, and then continues with the text, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last month, April, remember the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died, rose triumphant. It's the heart of the Christian faith. Sounds like a confession of faith in our text. Jesus was uh, delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So that was Good Friday and Easter. And this uh, concise confession shows us very clearly how much God has done for us in Christ, how incredibly richly he has blessed us. And it also shows then how terribly poor and actually comfortless you would be without Christ. And it shows how necessary it is to embrace him by faith, which is Paul's purpose here, to show that we need to embrace him by faith. And note that the text first states that Jesus was delivered up because of our transgressions, our sins. Delivered up. That interesting expression, delivered up, that means handed over, surrendered. You hear those kind of words when a Canadian person who was wanted here is arrested in a foreign country. That person is then delivered up, handed over to the Canadian authorities to be judged and to be sentenced by the Canadian courts. Delivered up. So God delivered up the Lord Jesus Christ, surrendered him to the authorities here on earth, to the Jewish Sanhedrin and to Pilate, gave his son up to them. I give him completely over to you to deal with, to judge. And the result was predictable, right? Sinful human and worldly authorities here sentenced him to death by crucifixion, and they killed him. And all this shows us God's love for us and how richly blessed we are in Christ. And I preach to you the text with this theme then, Jesus was delivered up for us. It shows us two things. It shows us how greatly God loves us and it shows how richly God blesses us. So firstly, first, how greatly God loves us. So Jesus was delivered up. He was given up completely. And amazing if you think about it, that God gave him up like that. Imagine mothers, fathers here that one of your children, maybe your son would want to go to war 
in Syria or Iraq to fight the Muslim extremists there. Go right into the middle of the battle. I think you would not be in favor of that, would you? He might come to harm and to death, to die. Parents want to kick their children from that. So you'd do everything in your power to keep him here from going into that dangerous situation. You don't want to give him up to that. Well, God did not spare his only begotten and perfect son, his eternal son, but he gave him up. He sent him to this earth under the effects of sin, here this earth under the effects of sin, and he he gave him up for us all. Delivered him to people who in the end uh, scoffed at him, rejected him, forsook him, denied him, betrayed him, condemned him, spit on him, whipped him, crucified him. And through all that, God just drew back and said, go ahead. He's yours. I deliver him into your hands. That expression, delivered him up, after all, comes back every time again in the Gospels, too. Especially near the end of Jesus' life here on earth. Judas says to the chief priests and the Pharisees, what will you give me if I deliver him up to you? And later it says in the Gospels that the Sanhedrin delivered Jesus up to Pontius Pilate. We give him to you, Pilate. Now you condemn him. And later it says that Pilate, even though he had determined that he was innocent, he delivered him up to the soldiers to be crucified. He lets them mock him and put him to death. And think about it, it's terribly humiliating if you're given up like that every time. People just want to get rid of you. Deliver you up to others down the line every time, who only want to destroy you. That's how little they valued his life. Please get rid of this man. But God delivers him up in the first place, even though Jesus is his own beloved son. The thing is, our, our salvation was worth more to God than Jesus' suffering and death, the suffering and death of his son. That's why he gave him up to be innocently condemned to people who crucified him, who subjected him to the curse of God and the full wrath of God on the cross. God the Father did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us. That's what took place with Jesus' suffering and death on Good Friday, and that's what... That confession of faith in our text then expresses he was delivered up because of our transgression, for our transgression. You know, as it says, for our transgressions in the text, and that means he was delivered up because of our sins. It was necessary for him to be delivered up in order for us to be saved from the punishment of our sins. What was hanging over our heads. There's no other way for us to be saved from that, then by God the Father delivering up 
his only begotten son to the deepest, the very deepest and ultimate suffering and death in our place. Now, J.C. Ryle, the famous 19th century British minister, wrote that the necessity of God's delivering up his son shows us two things. First of all, that God had to deliver up his son because of our transgressions that shows the greatness of our sins and sinfulness. We just sang that, Psalm 86, the overwhelming. We are overwhelmed by that, the greatness of our sins and misery. And secondly, that God had to deliver up his son because of our offenses shows the greatness of God's love for us, that he was willing to go that far for us. And true faith, that's what he's talking about in this chapter, Paul, has to embrace those two things, right? First of all, shows the greatness of our sins and sinfulness, a growing realization of the great evil of our sin. What have I done that the God of glory had to deliver up his only son for me? That means that my transgressions are not just a, a mistake on my part. Oops, I, I could have done better, Lord. No. I stepped on God's heart. I transgressed a boundary that God had put where God says, don't go there. Because otherwise you'll die. That was right from the beginning already. Don't eat the fruit of that tree or you will die. And that happens every time we transgress, we sin. We fall like Eve, Adam and Eve in the garden. It was wrong to do before God, but I still did it. Or it was the right thing to do and I still didn't do it. Or I did the right thing, but I did it without love. Because of those kind of transgressions, I ignore my holy and almighty creator who alone is good and the overflowing fountain of all good in whose presence no evil can exist. No sin can exist. And therefore, I see in that too, my sin is serious, overwhelmingly serious. And the thing is, we can live here and it might not seem that way. People can do horrible sins and keep on living and it might not seem that way. I might not feel guilty about my sin even. But the Spirit tells us in the Word and in our text that our transgressions were so serious that God had to deliver up his one and only son for my sins in order that he would deal with them. What have I done? What do I still do? Still now, thought in thought, word, and deed. 
I know what it is. And I still can't stop sinning. I still can't stop causing God offense. Doing things that cannot stand in the presence of holy God. How intolerable and unbearable I must be to God himself. That he sent his son for me. How ashamed of it myself I need to be before God. Congregation, I say that because we're, we're all very inclined to play down the seriousness of sin. Right? Not a big deal. Made a mistake. Nothing to get too concerned about. Everybody sins. But if God says in his word that it required him to deliver up his one and only beloved son. Then surely you can't say no big deal. Can you? No sin is so terrible in God's sight. That if you don't share by faith in Christ's suffering and death, you will have to undergo the suffering and death he underwent yourself. And you won't get finished with it forever. Then God will deliver you up to the powers of eternal destruction and wrath and punishment of hell yourself. You will have to descend into hell yourself. And deal with the ultimate consequences of sin there forever. The second thing God's giving up his son because of our transgressions shows us is, and that way outweighs the other two, how great God's love for us is. Think about that. How great God's love for us is that he was willing to hand his son over to people to do what they wanted with him. Amazing that your salvation was worth more to God than the well-being of his son in the flesh here. He completely let go of his son, delivered him up to save you and me, to carry the guilt of my sin, to bear the awful punishment I deserve, to descend into the awful darkness of hell where I should go. When God, as it were, had to choose between delivering me up to hell or delivering his only son to hellish agony and punishment, he gave up his son, delivered him up. To, to save me. Willing to go that far in order to save you and me. Sinners. While we were still sinners. He delivered up his son for us. Congregation, that is love. That is love, brothers and sisters, boys and girls. That's incredible love. And what's even more awesome, if you think about it, the son was completely willing to give himself for that too, to be available to be delivered up, even 
over to the suffering and hellish agony and to death as he did in the Gospels. He offered himself up for that. Let himself be delivered up for that. I for you. Otherwise, you would have suffered eternal death. What incredible love if you think about it all. I hope you see and feel, congregation, how far this is from ever saying, I know all this already. Why do I need to hear it again? Why can't you preach about something new? We need to hear this every time again in order to experience the love of God in our hearts, our own shame over our own sins, and then the love of God, to feel that in our hearts again and again and to grow in that. For weak and sinful people like us have such short memories We have kind of a spiritual amnesia. We so easily forget the depth of God's love for us. And we'll never come to the bottom of contemplating that. That love of God in delivering up his son for us. Knowing our sins then and seeing God's love is something we have to grow in all the time. It belongs to the daily practice of faith. Because that's what ultimately where we're Paul wants to bring us to. Faith. Hating my sins. Loving him who so loved us first. Loving his son. So we need to hear this heart of the gospel every time again. He was delivered up for our transgressions. And raised for our justification. Raised for our justification. That's the other side of our salvation in Christ. The other side of the coin. And that brings us to the second part of the sermon this morning. That God was raised for our justification shows how richly God blesses us. Raised for our justification. That word justification. Congregation means in this context. Made just before God. Or made perfect before God made innocent before God, made like we should be before him. So that there's nothing against us anymore. That God looks in there in his book and he says, there's, there's no crime here, there's no sin here anymore. The page is blank. And whoever is declared completely innocent can't be under arrest anymore, has to be released, is reconciled. In this context, it means being declared innocent by God, therefore freedom with God, at peace with God, eligible, free to enter eternal life with God. That's all connected to being justified. Just before God. Perfect. Totally innocent before God, you know, it would be impossible in the light of the law if that's all we had, God's law. Because the law requires us to be perfect, perfect not only in deeds, but also in our motives, what we, 
what motivates us to do what we do. And we can't deliver what the law requires of us. Even in our deepest motives, we have to admit it's not always perfect. Never in our lives will we be justified by ourselves. Can we? I tried to relativize the law a bit, you know, bring it down to my level, bring what it requires down more to my level of what I can do. I only want to look at the outside without bringing the heart into the picture with its motives and intentions, its love. And so I tried to lift myself up, improve myself by doing this and avoiding that and looking pretty good. It's making myself look outwardly better than I am. I can feel pretty good about myself then. Make a fairly good job of being good before God, making myself right before him. God, I've been a good person. You should like that. Bring the law down then and myself up, right? Until the spirit confronts me with the law and the depth of the law and the vanity of my thoughts and my abilities and my innocence and takes that away again. And it does that through Jesus Christ. It's showing me Jesus Christ. And then I realize again what I am. You know, then we're, we're a lot like Peter who said to Jesus, I'll never disown you, Lord. But when he heard the cock crow, he remembered Jesus' words. Jesus looked at him. And he remembered and he went out and he wept bitterly. It can take time, sometimes a lot of time and a lot of trouble. But in the end, every true believer comes to realize that they can't fulfill the law of God, can never justify themselves before God, can't do it. But we read the word justification in our text, legally declared innocent before God. Holy God, not just an earthly judge, but holy God. That he says you're innocent. In Romans 4, the expressions count to and counted to are used a number of times. If you look at verses 5, you know, it's, it uses that word a number of times in chapter 4. Verse 5, his faith is counted as righteousness. Verse 8, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Verse 22, it says there, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 23, or 24, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead. Counted to. Counted. And actually, sin is then officially not counted to or reckoned to us, but righteousness and innocence is reckoned to us. And you notice the accounting terms used here. You can think of an account. Let's say you have an account with Hydro One. Hydro prices went up so high. Let's say you 
oh, Hydra won $1,000. Hydra One sends you a notice. You need to pay or else. But the next time you get your bill, you notice that somebody else paid the full amount for you. And not only what you owed, but he even paid $1,000 more, doubled it. That money was reckoned to your account. And you were counted as not owing anything anymore. That's what justification actually comes down to. God ascribes what Jesus did to my account. God's son in our flesh fully obeyed God's law and fully bore the punishment for my transgressions. And therefore what he did is reckoned to me. Belongs to me as if I had paid it all myself. Jesus' obedience and suffering of the punishment for sin becomes my obedience and my payment for sin. And so, so that God now sees us as if we had never had nor committed any sin and done everything perfectly as Jesus did. Justified before him, innocent before him. And that's why it was necessary that Jesus was raised from the dead by God the Father. Absolutely necessary. You could see it something like this. Someone ends up in a fast-flowing river and is drowning. Someone else, a rescuer, jumps in the rushing water and throws his arms around the drowning person and holds him to his chest. And someone on the riverbank reaches out and pulls the rescuer out of the water with the drowning person. The thing is, the rescuer is hauled to shore together with the drowning person. You see, with his becoming man and his suffering and death, Jesus jumped into our situation here, grabbed hold of us as we were going under, held us to his heart, all the way to the cross. You were in his heart when he was on the cross. And God raised him from the dead. He had a right to come back to life. Because he had done everything that was needed for sin. To be given life. Eternal life. The grave couldn't hold him. Peter said at Pentecost. So he rose from the dead. And he lives again. But differently than before Good Friday and Easter. Before then from his birth on. He lived and died under the wrath of God. The curse for our sins on him. But now that he has been raised. His life is different. He has left condemnation and curse and death behind. All that was laid on him. He left that behind. He now lives in the glory of God's face. God raised him, drew him up into that glorified life. But he still has us in his heart, pressed to his heart. So God not only drew up his son into heaven, but also us with him. Into that life. That everlasting life. God doesn't take hold of sinners. But he takes hold of his son. And those who are in the embrace of his son. Are drawn up with him into life. He was raised for our justification. It says. We share fully through faith. We share fully in the life of Jesus Christ. Made right with God because of him. Our judgment is past. 
and we have life with him. Glorious future eternal life. But that begins here already. That new life. And because of Christ's resurrection, that's certain. He was raised so that all who are his would be raised with him to life with God. Congregation, just think that through how, how richly blessed you are in Christ, through faith in Christ. How safe with him. As surely as Jesus received that glorified life with God, so surely I have that life too with him, connected with him. All because he was willing to go through everything for me. Willing to be despised, condemned, spit on, crucified for me. Even though at any time he could have called in legions of angels to extract him from it all. He didn't do it. He wanted to give us life. How richly blessed we are with this Savior in whom we have life. You might think about it this way too. No riches here. No possessions here. No wonderful experiences in this world here can compare to the riches you have in Jesus Christ, in the life that he has obtained and gives you. In fact, you might not have a thing here anymore. But if you belong to him, you actually have everything. Everything. No wonder the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, I count everything here as rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Is that how you feel, brothers and sisters? With him? Blessed with him? Those riches are yours by faith in Christ. Faith means accepting that it's impossible for you to make things right with God yourself, giving yourself completely to Jesus Christ, letting him be your all, falling into his arms. That's what faith is. And you might think, well, that's, that's just too easy. No, it's not easy. It's not easy to accept everything Jesus did in faith like that. Because we want to hang on to something ourselves, too. We're so inclined to think we can make ourselves a little bit more acceptable in some way to God. Do this good thing, that good work. Look, God, look what I did. Always try to be pretty good, God. And then you try to keep doing the impossible, and it's going to wear you out if you try that. Faith is accepting I can't do anything for my own salvation. That's why I'm here. Impossible for you to justify yourself at all. Even if you lived as long as Methuselah, you know, who almost lived a thousand years. You need to let go of that kind of thinking. Thinking it's possible to make yourself somehow a little bit acceptable before God. You need, you need to lay that in Jesus' hands completely who gave himself 
up completely for you. He wants you to deliver yourself up completely to him. Give that impossible to him because he did what was impossible for you. He carried all your offenses, paid for all of them in full, more than full. And through the word here this morning, he comes to you again. And he says, don't try to make yourself acceptable to God. Give it to me. Hold on to me. That's all. Congregation, embrace him in faith. He was delivered up because of our trespasses and raised for our justification. And therefore, there is new life for us in the future, but now already too, with him. And that new life begins here, that eternal life begins with a life of thankfulness here. That's already starting eternal life here. Living with the desire to follow him, to serve him in everything. Then death is just a doorway to perfect service of him. Why follow, serve, and obey him? Why obey the Lord? For nothing. That's why you need to obey him. For nothing. Because you're already saved in him, already justified, already on the way to glory. So why follow Christ and obey God? Because that makes my life so much better and acceptable. No. Purely out of thankfulness. Thankfulness for the blessings. Not because you have to, but because you want to live for him who loved you first and gave himself up for you and blessed you with life. I want to love and serve him. And yes, I still sin, even though I've been so richly blessed. But I hate it. I hate it when I do that. And it causes me sorrow. But I can go to him again today and tomorrow and the day after in repentance in this life. He promised to listen to broken and contrite hearts. And that's faith. That's embracing him every day again. And when you live like that, then you really long for the day when the battle here is over and you'll be taken up to glory and to perfection with God. And you come before God's throne and he'll say to you too, innocent in my son. Glorified body, glorified soul, perfect joy with God. Jesus has that all already with God. After his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. I just have part of that here yet. Through faith, you share in his life now already. New life under God's grace here. But we don't share everything fully with Christ yet. Our bodies are still subject to pain here and Weakness. And our souls still have such a struggle here to hold on to everything here. And we have tempered joy. No, I I don't share in the fullness of Christ's glory yet. But if you embrace him in faith every day again, you know, it's just a matter of time then, right? It's just a matter of time. A matter of dying and then being raised up again too on the last day. And then you'll be with God himself and with the Lamb and share in that perfect life and glory. 
that they, they have too. No more struggle, sorrow anymore forever. And that hope will temper all the sorrows and struggles here. Because then we live forever in the perfect joy of him in whom we have been so richly blessed. So blessed. Amen.